chapter 3, verses 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. It's kind of a big chunk. Uh, earlier this week, a friend of mine sent me a link to a song, and just the word, yikes. I was a little confused. I, I clicked on the song, expecting something weird or, or odd or awful, and it was an old hymn that had been set to a more modern tune, and it was a beautiful tune, and the lyrics of the hymn were good and solid, and I was really confused why my friend had just said, yikes, I was, is he turning into a heretic or something? Does he just have awful taste in music? What's going on here? And I asked him, I was like, hey, what's, what, what, do you, what do you mean? And he said, did you look at the ar- artist? And I said, uh, no, and I did. And uh, it turns out it had been sung by a man who had since making the song had had an affair, left his wife, and publicly and openly denied key elements of the faith and is in open rebellion against God's word. And it just struck something in me as I, I just listened to him sing this wonderful and beautiful song and yet how sad it is to think about where he is now. And it also served as a good reminder of the need to be on guard against sin and consider the warnings of Scripture against sin and unbelief. We all know people who have either given into grievous sin or left the faith or often, sadly, both. And what does the Scripture say about this topic and how does it address it and what should we do? And our passage this morning addresses this topic and gives us both great encouragement and great warnings to consider. And so we'll pick up in verse 7 of chapter 3 down to verse 11 of chapter 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again (coughs) for this day and for this time. We ask that you would be with us as we approach your word. May your spirit be at work and giving us insight, opening our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, giving me words to speak that build up and encourage and convict. Lord, help us as we come to this difficult um, passage, both difficult in understanding at times and difficult just in the weight of what's being addressed here. Lord, may we hear your voice today from your word. May we listen. In Christ's name, amen. So far... As we've gone through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been focusing on lifting up Christ <coughs> and explaining who he is and what he has done. He has he's had some practical applications, but mostly up until this point, he's been more focused on just giving us this beautiful picture of Jesus as prophet, priest and king and focusing in on priest and uh, some other things throughout chapters one and two that we didn't get into. But here. We see him turn a corner and become a little bit more practical, a little bit more urgent in his warnings and his application. Um, At times, we might be tempted to regard the things of God lightly or hypothetically, hopefully not intentionally, but a a sense can creep into our minds and hearts and lives that, I mean, religious things are important, but there are more important things. Sometimes there are, but these things can get pushed to the side. And the author urges his reader to reject this and really consider the dangers of ignoring God's word or treating it lightly. And both as a reminder and source of this authority, he opens this passage by reminding us and the audience that these aren't just his words. And they're not just the words of David who wrote the psalm he quotes. And he knows it's David. We read in the passage where he says, as David said later on, But instead, he focuses first on saying, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, God the Spirit speaks to us every time we open his word. But it's worth remembering this now, especially as we consider this difficult and challenging topic. This is the word of God. And thanks be to God for his holy word. And we're going to consider God's word together and the strong reminders and warnings it gives us this morning. Uh as we consider this passage. As we go through it, I want to focus on three things this morning. I'm a good Presbyterian today with three points. Then they all have uh, alliteration in the title. We have the perfidy of sin, or perfidy of sin, the perseverance of the saints, and the paradox of rest and striving. The perfidy of sin, the perseverance of the saints, and the paradox of rest and striving. Firstly, let's talk about the perfidy of sin. I chose perfidy because it fits with the alliteration. Uh, But it just means deceitfulness. It just means uh, untrustworthiness. That's what that word means. I had to look it up myself. Um, But that's what it means. Just the sin lies and deceives. It acts like our friend, but it betrays us and destroys us. The example I gave earlier is a very extreme example of sin and failure and falling away. Maybe it's unrelatable to you. I mean, I hope it is. 
I hope the idea of leaving your spouse and denying core elements of the faith is unimaginable. But it's important to remember that such extreme examples and stories rarely ever start that extreme. Like an illness or cancer, they start small and grow and grow. And it usually begins with a small sin, a small area of rebellion, something light and trivial. But sin is deceitful and perfidious. We convince ourselves it's not a big deal, it's not that bad, but it grows and corrupts until reality crashes down around us and we realize we messed up. We must, we must not think that we are somehow immune to this, that this is a danger for others and not us. The author, I mean, that's what he, he starts off in verses 7 through 8, warning us about. He's a speaking to Christians here, his audience. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This is a call to hear God's word today. And specifically to not harden our hearts against it, but to let it in. To let God's word adjust our hearts and lives to its demands. It's important to remember the context of what the author and David are referencing here. If you remember your Old Testament, God had uh, called Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. And God brought them out with a mighty arm, uh, with plagues and miracles and many wondrous works. And it was an incredible supernatural display of God's power and authority. And the Israelites and even some Egyptians left Egypt. And many truly trusted in Yahweh. But in this large group were not only those who believed and had faith, such as Joshua and Moses and Caleb and others, but also very, very many who had left Egypt but continued hardening their hearts and rebelling against God and giving in to sin. If you read the Exodus account, it's, it's really striking how much grumbling and complaining there is. We go through it in ninth grade, and uh, it's, just, it's almost too repetitive. Uh, when I tell the kids, you know, then this happened, and guess what the Israelites did then? Grumble and complain, and we get to another part. Guess what the Israelites did then? Grumble, complain, and over and over again, they rebelled and did not trust God. They didn't trust him to provide food and water and safety and security. Though over and over and over and over again, God did. They would not listen. They would not believe. So you have this big group of Israelites, some of who trust God, follow him, and many of whom don't. And yet, they are together, mixed together. And we just had a new members class last week, and one of the things we discussed was the different ways we can use the word church. And one of the ways we can talk about church is to talk about the visible church or all those who claim to be Christians. We talked in the new members class, and uh, I'll say this morning that this distinction is important because this passage and others teaches and shows that among God's visible people or visible church are two kinds of people. Those who are truly God's people and those who may join the covenant People who come near to God, who claim the blood of Christ and partake of the sacraments and taste the gifts of the Holy Spirit and others, and yet do not truly believe, do not have faith. They are not united with Christ. They, they're not saved, though they are among God's people. It's entirely possible to be a part of God's people outwardly without being a part of God's people inwardly. We know this from this passage and from 
others. I'm reminded of Christ's word in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are people who claim Christ, call him Lord, who are not Christ. Again, in John 1, 5 through 9, or 1 John 1, 5 through 9. John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John says, if we say we have fellowship, we claim to follow Jesus, and yet we harden our hearts, we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't don't know Jesus. We don't know God. But if we walk in the light... We have fellowship with each other. We know Jesus, and he cleanses us from our sin. Or 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul gives us a test in 2 Corinthians. We, we preached that recently, and we looked at that. Um, but this is the idea of, we can be deceived. There are people who think they're Christians and yet are not. They're among the people of God and yet there is no spiritual life. How could this be? How could this be possible? It feels incredible that such a thing could occur and yet we see over and over again it does. We'd be foolish to think it doesn't. And many of us know people who are talked about in these verses who left the faith, who didn't pass the test, who were a part of the church, and yet fell. The reason this is possible is that sin is deceitful. It lies and deceives. It's perfidious. It lies to us about the seriousness of sin, but it also lies to us about our status before God. God's word goes out calling to those who are among God's people to forsake sin and cling to Christ, and instead of God's word affecting these people, they harden their hearts. They might say, in essence, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This is a good message for that person over there. Or they might say, the preacher's wrong. I don't struggle with this. Or maybe, yeah, I struggle with this, but it's not that bad. Or even God's word is wrong, not me. Which is what all these are, in a way. The original lie and deception has God really said. In their sin, they harden their hearts by these and other ways, and ignore the call to repent and trust in Christ, all while thinking they are Christians. And the author of Hebrews sees this and warns in verse 11, excuse me, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And look at what the root of the issue here is. The root of the issue isn't that these people are doing awful and terrible things, though that certainly can be the case. The issue is that they have unbelieving hearts. They do not truly believe God's word. This passage isn't arguing that true Christians can fall away from God or lose their salvation by their actions or sins. We'll talk a little bit about that more on my second point. But what the author is getting at here is he's saying that it's possible to be among the brothers and sisters, to be a member of God's people outwardly, 
and fall away because you never really believed in the first place, that you have an unbelieving heart. And the primary evidence of this, the primary way to test this, is does God's word have the effect it ought to? Do you harden your heart? Or does God's word lead to greater righteousness, greater love? Or does it lead to greater deception and hardness of heart? You might think, okay, what, what am I supposed to do? You're telling me there's these people in the church who may not be Christian or people who claim Christ, maybe not in our char- church, the, but in the church as a whole. There are people who proclaim Christ. And wh- what am I supposed to do about this? What are, what are you supposed to do? I mean, it's not as, those who, not as though those who truly believe receive a, a golden glow around them or some other visible thing. That would be nice, right? be cool. And we can't read hearts or minds, so what do we do? The author gives us what we are to do in light of all these things in verse 13. Well, number one, we're to take care personally, to take care, to examine ourselves, as Paul says. And then in verse 13, he gives us our responsibility to each other. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're called to exhort or encourage each other, to be concerned with each other, to be encouraging each other with God's word and correcting and instructing each other. We're not meant to be loner Christians who have no input into our lives apart from maybe the sermon or Bible reading. We're made to live together and encourage one another so that when there is someone hardening her, their heart, we can see it and say, brother, sister, don't harden your heart. Take care. Listen to God's word. Because believe it or not, there are only so many of us elders. While the elders are called to shepherd and exhort and encourage and look for this, the passage here and other passages teach us it's not just our responsibility. We all have a responsibility to care for one another. It is all of our responsibility. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, let us exhort each other every day as long as it is called today. I love that line there. As long as it's called today, every single day, reach out to your brothers and sisters. Call them and text them. Have meals together. Be involved in each other's lives. Talk about God's word. Encourage each other. Exhort one another. Not because we want to catch those wascally false converts, but because we love each other and want ourselves and our brothers and sisters to grow in holiness and love for Christ and because we want anyone who is deceived and doesn't know Christ to have to reckon with that, that they might realize, you know, I don't know Christ, and then come to truly know him. Christ's disciples felt some of this at the Last Supper when he told his disciples that one of them would betray him. And you remember what they said? Each one of them said, is it I, Lord? They're all worried. Is it me? It's an example of a, a tender heart, worrying. When we consider the perfidy of sin, it's right to worry and test ourselves and consider our own hearts. To take a moment to do some self-examination. Do we believe? Do we harden our hearts against God's word? But the issue is not, are we sinless? None of us ever will be until glory. And the issue is,
even if we may fall short of what we want, do we have that desire? Or do we consistently harden our hearts and reject his word and the exhortation of our brothers and sisters? Pastor Alex Shipman likes to say throughout his sermons, but do you believe? I love that because it really puts the, hits what this passage is getting at. Do you believe this word? Do you take sin seriously? Do you hate your sin and love Christ? When when we preach, when we read God's word and we see God say this, whatever it may be, do you take that seriously for yourself, for others? Or do we ignore it, cast it off, treat it lightly, rebel against it? Do we believe sin is perfidious and deceives us into thinking we're really Christians when we're not or deceives us about the seriousness of sin? And if we consider our hearts and test ourselves and say, yes, I do believe, then there is great hope. There's great hope because God has promised that his saints will persevere to the end. The reality of false converts and hardness of hearts should move us to a deep examination of our own hearts and our own sin. But when we examine ourselves and say, I do believe, when we pass that test, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we can have great certainty and assurance that we are his and he is ours. And we will not fall away because God will uphold us and complete the good work he started in us. Verse 3, 14, we see that. The author says, For we have come to share in Christ, <clears throat> if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now this is not saying that we must hold our original confidence firm to the end in order to share in Christ. As if the prerequisite for sharing in Christ is faithfulness until the end. That we have to work and earn our share of Christ by our good deeds and faithfulness until the end of our lives. And if we don't, then we'd lose Christ. It could be potentially read that way, and, and so I want to understand why we might be tempted to read it that way. But when we stop and think about this verse, I think it becomes obvious that's not what the author is going for in this. Firstly, the author is not saying we will share in Christ if we hold our faithfulness until the end. That would make more sense if he were trying to say that our faithfulness until the end was the grounds for our sharing in Christ. Instead, he says we have come to share in Christ. It's a past and present reality. We as believers presently and really share in Christ. And the author says the proof of that fact that we have come to share in Christ is that we uh, will keep our original confidence firm to the end. The perseverance of the saints is the ultimate proof of inward faith. Just as hardening the hearts and falling away is the ultimate proof of lack of inward faith, persevering through sin, through doubt, to the end, the ultimate proof of faith. If I go on a trip and ask Pastor Adam to come and feed and water my animals, uh, what's the proof that he did that? Think about that. Well, the proof would be I get home and all my animals are alive and well. The dogs are happy, the pigs are fed and watered, and no one's dead. That's what you hope for. Whenever you go on trips, Lord, please don't let any chickens or pigs or especially not dogs die. Um, I get home and all the animals are fed, well watered, they're, they're alive and well. 
When we get it backwards, when we get this passage backwards, it's like saying that the requirement for Adam to feed and water my animals is that they are alive and well when I get home, which is nonsensical, really. We could say it this way, for Adam has watered and fed my animals, if indeed I return home and they are alive and well. You see how that works here in this passage? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The holding of the original confidence firm to the end is the proof, the assurance that we, of that faith. And the reverse is just as true as well. If Adam feeds and waters my animals, all other things being equal, of course, they will be alive and well. What happens at the start guarantees the end. The author is saying those who truly believe will continue to believe, while those who harden their hearts will not hold fast the original confidence until the end. And this is further affirmed in this passage, down in chapter 4, verse 1. The author says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So that's verses 1 and 2, and this is a repetition of what we already explained in the first point about hardening of hearts and the lack of faith being the real issue. Um, but the author goes on in verse 3 to give the counterpoint. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We who have believed Enter that rest. No qualifications, no prerequisites, no conditions. We who believe enter that rest, period. We have salvation. Rest from our works, as we'll see in a minute. Rest from our uh, a striving to make ourselves holy for God. Rest in God's salvation. And there's nothing that will change that. This passage tells us that those who believe will continue to believe. The issue here is not that those who fall away were true believers, but rather that they didn't have belief. And this is the testimony here and elsewhere in Scripture as well. Jesus in John 6, 39-40 tells us that this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus says that everyone who believes, I will raise up on the last day. Jesus says, I'm not going to lose anything that God has given me, any of the people God has given to me. If they believe in me, I will raise them up. Or in John 10, 25 through 30, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, my sheep believe. And if you don't believe, you're not of my sheep. And my sheep will never perish. I will keep them safe. Or Philippians 1, 6, uh, uh, one of my favorite passages. Uh, I think Brian uh, mentioned this in his prayer. Um, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews wants us to take sin seriously. He wants us to take care lest there be in any of us an evil and unbelieving heart. And he wants us to exhort each other and help each other. But he also wants us to know and trust. And if we see God's word at work in our hearts, if we examine ourselves and say, you know what, I do sin, I do struggle, I do doubt, but I genuinely believe and I genuinely repent and and I soften my heart and I see that, I see evidence of God working in me, then there is no need for fear. We can have assurance that we are saved and know God because there's a test and evidence for that. Holiness, continued faith, the fruit of the Holy Spirit who is within the children of God. And when we see that, we can know we will persevere till the end. Not because of how tightly we hold on to God, because we often know it's not that tight, but because of how tightly he holds on to us. Because he has promised here and throughout his word that he will cause his saints to persevere. Lastly, I want to talk about the seeming paradoxes that arises from these two truths. On one hand, we have the stern warning that we ought to be careful with sin and test ourselves and take sin seriously. On the other hand, we have the firm promise that those who believe will persevere and God will never let us go, but rather keep us to the end no matter what. And there's a bit of a paradox of rest and striving that comes to the fore. And we see it in the last bit of this passage. The author begins discussing the idea of rest in chapter 4. We see this uh, in verse 4, chapter 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long after, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author explains this idea of rest as meaning more than just simply stopping creation or work or entering the promised land. Rather, he says, these were a picture, a type of a a greater and truer rest that is available to all of us today, as David says. It is today that you are to respond if you hear his voice. It is today that we can enter his rest. And what is this rest? Well, in verse 10, he says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This rest is a rest from our works. When the author of Hebrews talks about works, he talks about them in a few contexts, um, three in particular. There's God's works, which are good and worthy of praise and consideration. There are good works, which we'll get into a little bit more next week in chapter 10, uh, where the author encourages Christians to stir one another up to love and good works that flow out of faith. And then there are what the author calls, in multiple places, dead works. These are works, he says, we need to repent from, that we need to be purified from. These are works done not in faith, not good works, not out of love and obedience to God, but rather works which we perform to try to earn God's grace. They are dead works because they are pointless and useless. 
They cannot, they cannot accomplish anything or do anything. Like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. They can never satisfy. They can never accomplish what, they want, what we want them to. They're dead and useless. And we just do them over and over again without any point. We cannot work our way into God's grace. And yet we try. We try to earn our salvation. And the author offers out rest from these kinds of works and rest in God's grace. I know how sweet this rest is. How sweet it is to know you are accepted, that you are loved, that you are cleansed and purified, that you are in Christ. That you will be His forever and He will bring you to Himself. That you don't need to do anything to earn righteousness because you have His as your own. This is a great rest. In one sense, the Christian life is easy because it's a life of resting in God's grace and God's salvation. We feel that rest. We feel the joy of that rest. But the paradox is that in addition to rest, there is striving. Verse 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's so odd to me, right? I love that. Let's strive to enter that rest. I have to, the author obviously knows he's doing that intentionally. Um, a little bit of uh, this juxtaposition there. Faith creates rest, but also requires striving. The Christian life is easy and restful, truly and really, but it's also difficult and hard. Because as we know, it requires striving and discipline and dying to ourselves. Jesus calls us to put to death what is earthly in us. The author of Hebrews calls us to strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Paul regularly commands us to do different things, to work, as he says in Philippians, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Both these things are true in a kind of paradoxical way. We have sweet rest and the grace of Christ from dead works. But paradoxically, we're called to strive to enter that rest, to strive to believe, to strive to follow Christ, to strive against our sin and rebellion and hard hearts. As we consider the perfidy of sin, the perseverance of the saints, the temptation is either to think, I've got to really make sure I do enough to be saved. I've got to really make sure not to be a sinner. The perseverance of the saints comes in and says, God's got you. There's nothing you can do that can break his hold on you. There's nothing you can do to keep him from raising you up on the last day. You can rest in his grace. You can rest in his promises. On the other hand, we might be feel the call to rest in God's grace to the point where we say, why shouldn't we sin that grace may abound? Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't I do what I want? Doesn't, God's going to save me anyways. It doesn't really matter. And the striving calls to us, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. Exhort one another. As we consider both these two truths, we're called to a balance between them, a balance between striving and rest, or maybe not even a balance necessarily, but an acceptance of both at once, fully and really. We are to really and truly rest in God's grace and in the perseverance of the saint, while also striving against sin, 
taking care to consider ourselves and to have tender hearts. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this more practical passage, let us consider our own hearts. As we close, stop and consider yourself. Today, the Lord calls to each and every one of us to hear his voice and his word. Let us consider his word as it corrects us and instructs us and exhorts us and ask ourselves, do I harden my heart? Do I ignore the voice of the good shepherd? Do I justify my sin, ignore my sin, cover it up? Do I really believe? Or do I hear his word and see my sin? Do I recognize where I fall short and where I've not striven as I ought? Do I seek to have a tender heart? Not perfectly, not always. But do I see the evidence of God's working in my life through his word? Do I believe? Do you believe? And if you do, brothers and sisters, take joy in this. And take joy in the assurance that is ours in Christ. Though we are sinners, though we are failures at times, though we are weak and doubting at times, we have come to share in Christ. And those who share in Christ will hold their confidence firm till the end. You can count on it and bank on it. You can rest in it. Of course, the rest offer does not free us to give up and not care about sin. It frees us to strive all the more. And we'll talk about this more next week in chapter 10. How faith and how trusting and believing in Christ leads to joyful obedience. To the point where the, the, uh, the audience of the book of Hebrews joyfully accepted the plundering of their property for the sake of Christ. That they would do anything for Christ joyfully and gladly. And resting in God's grace gives us the freedom to strive, not because we want to earn our way, but because we love our Lord. Out of the joy and gratitude that his salvation brings as we follow our great shepherd while leaning on his arms. As we close, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we pray that as your Holy Spirit speaks to us and works, Lord, that we would not harden our hearts as in the rebellion but rather that we would consider our own hearts, that we would take care, that we would exhort each other, that we would reach out and seek to help each other grow, to bear each other's burdens, to, to love one another enough to say, brother, sister, I'm worried about this in myself, in each other. Lord, help us. Lord, we pray for those who do not truly know you and yet claim you. Lord, we pray that you would help us reach out to, to each other, that we may really and truly know you. Father, help us to rest in your grace. Be with us now as we come to the table and to close our service. In Christ's name, amen.